Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You found a stray kitten one day, taking her in and feeding her. A week later, you come home to find your yard swarming with cats. The largest among them steps forward and says, you have my daughter, human. What are your demands for her release? Maddeningly, you hear only the same response when you try to ask her to leave. And then she says, all right, I'll come with you, but please stay put, I want you to find me a new home. And then she says, all right, I'll come with you, but please stay put, I want you to find me a new home. And I don't know why her eyes closed. But, there is, you know, she's beautiful or at least, that's what happens in this scene and the other scenes, you know. There's that whole time her hand is in her pants. So I want it to be, like her eyes don't move. I can see the sun in her hair. Amy Goodman, you just talked about the importance of the role of her grandmother, how it was for you, when a lot of people talk about her from the age of 16, how the very late grandma, who was very into medicine, could have helped her grow up in America by having a good grandmother. Cabulary picky, that's right. Right. My grandmother did she used to live in a house in Atlanta called, you know, Mr. Pickett's house, and all these families would get together. I remember one day, like, with my grandmother, she was out with two boys and she'd just tell them, oh, my sweet baby. I love this new mom. And one day, something in that house and she said to them, what? You want to take this picture? And I said, no, I don't know that, because I don't know what she saw. I knew there was one picture, and that was her face. She would take a picture of me, and she'd walk around with me and she'd go, here's a picture of me, your grandmother. And they would say, we're so lucky to have your grandmother. And I said, well, thank you, but we'll see what it means. Amy Goodman, Barbara Pickney, you brought us this clip from the documentary, the other half, part one. Amy Goodman, Barbara Pickney, you brought us this clip from the documentary, The Other Half, part one. It's now available to stream on YouTube, NPR's video. Barbara Pickney joins us on set and joins us here, she's a filmmaker. This is Democracy Now! This is Democracy Now! DemocracyNow.org, The War and Peace Report. We're going to turn to an excerpt of the movie that we've called The Other Half. Here's a transcript. This story was originally published on the War and Peace Report and is reproduced with permission. Amy Goodman. For a second time on this, Barbara Pickney, PH, your mom died in 1996, after her husband, Edward, was arrested and imprisoned for 10 years. She went to prison for 10 years. My sister-in-law, the daughter of former President Bill Clinton, is also a former prisoner and is in prison. Here, I want to return to, again, some of Barbara's research on the topic in her new book, My Life as a Prisoner, How a Prisoner's Life from 1971 to 2008 Helps Others. She's been very selective and very open about these things but there was a time in the 1960s and 1970s where she knew something about prison, the prisons in America, that when you're a prisoner, 
you have all these options. She wanted to have everything, she wanted everything. And to have a really, really good time and to understand what it was like inside a small prison you have in some of these small towns in this small country. Barbara Pickney, welcome to Democracy Now! This was part of our special program at NPR called The Other Half, Part 1. Our show is just breaking into two segments from this month's program. What we're going to talk about is why, for instance, the U.S.'s national security agencies are still tracking, or searching for, the use of secret information for illegal uses. The most revealing part is just how they're trying to use the information collected for such a thing. Our call with Barbara Pickney was a very public and very, very important event that we're covering here, because that's the only way we're going to get her perspective. So let me bring you to the interview, because, before we did this, we did an interview, called The Other Half, in which Barbara Pickney talks about how these kinds of techniques were used and how these were used and what were the implications and implications for the US and what Americans would do if they were targeted. She takes one of these two segments with us. 1507, so when the White House says, this is too sensitive for your personal privacy, where she's talking about those kinds of disclosures, she goes beyond that. Amy Goodman, why, you know, do they use these things? Bruce Ross, well, because what they're talking about is the information that goes around, for information about other people, as some of the intelligence services, they use those two things with regard to those kind of issues. The president might ask the secretary of state who he had or the secretary of defense about his own privacy and they'll ask about something. And the question is, is that sensitive at all? If no one asks about that, the intelligence community may just say no. And then what may be important is whether you're talking about that information to the military, to other agencies that may not have very sensitive information. And if you have any of those questions, your security may be really at risk. So this particular question that you were asking about how things are going to be used, which in today's world is a very, very murky environment, that is going to be very, very difficult to answer. But that is what really matters here. The administration hasn't had any public conversation about it, you know, about it until now. Nermain Sheikh, one reason we're still talking about this is because the NSA and Justice have all those kind of documents to keep tabs on. You know, some things that were classified, others haven't. And this is not what this will become. But if you want to keep up with this, this is our program, in fact, and we're going to continue talking about it. We'll let you know right now what the NSA is saying and the Justice Department is saying. Nermain Sheikh, one reason we're still talking about this is because the NSA and Justice have all those kind of documents to keep tabs on. You know, some things that were classified, others haven't. And this is not what this will become. But if you want to keep up with this, this is our program, in fact, and we're going to continue talking about it. We'll let you know right now what the NSA is saying and the Justice Department is saying. And we hope that all of us as members of the public can at the same time understand and learn of the fact that a government agency is using this so-called PRISM program and that the NSA is doing this that is so harmful for the United States and our democracy. And we all have our concerns and concerns about the surveillance of our privacy and our right to go about our daily lives and not have to do that. One of the things that the Americans have been requesting of the NSA is transparency and the right to continue with the NSA's business when it's needed, so as to have the privacy of our people. 
You know, one other thing that's always been the most interesting and important to us in the past 10 or 15 years, the National Security Agency has become increasingly so secret and so much more so. There are people like Al-Qaeda, North Korea and now Russia. And some of these countries are going to use this all of their intelligence in order to take more political power. As we said in our joint press conference yesterday, which was just the first time we've ever called on the government to cooperate with the American people, they have very similar intentions to use what's called special interest collection. I know what these people are talking about, they're talking about the ability of the NSA to spy on us and for every single American who goes through, as if through his or her life, through their job, that, the NSA may also collect information that's not within his or her national security clearance because that information, so essentially, is not within the Americans' national security. And in the past 10 years, with this NSA-like program, the State Department, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and virtually every single major industry that does business with the NSA has asked what NSA can do with that information and, I believe, that is why now we're talking about this. We just like to call this the Snowden Project, the biggest snooping attempt ever or the Vault 7. We've been listening in on people doing business with this so-called PRISM program for some time now. That is a good example of how big of a deal it is. You know, just by listening to how much information a person is giving away that it's impossible to get away with. So the public is probably going to have a difficult time understanding. Now the NSA and Justice Department have been going to hearings, that's going on every single day since the last hearing on VAC, because most of the folks here are really concerned about this because of the NSA and that data, and they all just want an answer on how they can be trusted because obviously it's going to be classified information. And there are people who are concerned with that. And I thought that the question for sure that they ought to answer, because I think it's really important to remember this is happening today. The U.S. Senate has just called for a vote on a resolution which would require the NSA to provide more transparency, because there is so much information for everyone to access that this data can easily be accessed by any individual or any organization, whether it's the military, law enforcement, intelligence, any agency. And there needs to be the cooperation of all of us, whether it's in Congress or in the executive branch. And here in this session, we are going to be asking you to ask for more details. You better be honest and put the questions in a way to make sure this actually happens. Because if this is so troubling to you, I mean, we really want transparency in our nation. And I think a lot of you might want to ask me if that sounds like what he's talking about. And it reminds me of the past years, when I think of this and I think a lot of you also think of surveillance as we were going through these kind of huge wars dash. Amy Goodman, and as we came up on this, our guests John Edwards, the head of The Intercept, and Bill Clark of Tech Dirt also joined us. John Wheatley, this is really important because not only does this allow us to ask, we're asking for a fair, open and transparent process. What happens if we get this right and we're able to get a fair and open process back in the United States because you have so much data about us, and we have so many people with sensitive information about us that it's difficult or impossible to get a correct answers with. If they do, it's not something we'd like to see. It would be nice to have something that I can talk to and get a public answer and also have information that that's being provided to the FBI from the source and what the source's background means. Is that accurate? 
Simon Greenwald, so this is the issue, it is kind of the very essence of what we're fighting against. The right question is, what is the right level of disclosure of the information that was sent, and then why has they received it? The answer is, yes, there is a right way to be able to understand why there is not enough information available to investigate of these kinds of attacks. And there are other things that we want to see. The American people deserve to know that, okay? And the American public needs information. And this is a problem that needs to be addressed. We need to find out exactly why these attacks have taken place. Because we've seen the US spy for more than a decade, now, on our own citizens, what happened with the Syrian refugees on the American side that happened in the wake of our invasion of Iraq and Syria. So if you want to look at the answer to a question that may not even have been answered, no question can be asked about this. And what is so troubling is, you don't know this? Look at the people who did it. We understand. We know how to understand it. And if you are trying to justify the actions of such a group, there must have been intelligence that, no, something had to be wrong. These attacks were not carried out by a group that had been a part of our country. This is not who we were. We are a country, because every day these terrorists, these terrorists take out innocent civilians, their families, who would not have allowed us to have a fair and open dialogue with them with these kind of attacks that occurred. And we're going to have this conversation about what we saw last week. I've mentioned just recently before, with our members, we will have hearings in order to know whether or not those actions were, in fact, motivated by radical Islam. I actually think that the only response that the White House has offered is to say, you are not a target, and this information will not be used in any way before the American people. There is a lot of pressure on the press and it seems, as if they think it is the best of both worlds if they don't want these intelligence collected for propaganda purposes. Simon Greenwald, we understand that, and we will do in order to respond. But, again, this is actually a very interesting development. This is the US, it's getting a new president now and it's asking for a new process, and this is a very sad reminder yet again, that you're not going to get every individual and every problem solved. You can't really do that if what's being said isn't the truth. And so I'm very hopeful we'll get to a great deal sooner than later. If you're with me, I'm in a position where we want to make sure that we're very clear about how we're going to solve this. But, I think this is a really important time to say, what are you guys for? If we're actually going to do something good then we have some more time to put our best into it. Question, you just asked a question about how much longer do you think Barack Obama can stay in office? Mr. Rodman, well, it's definitely going to be very difficult to make that determination. I think there's going to be some change and some change might be needed in that, but it will be challenging, it'll be very difficult. But I think there will be some time that Barack Obama will be out of office for a while with no longer a place to go, and maybe the world might not know what to do with him. I think he's going to have to be very good about things. And so I think they're not going to take very long to make the decision. It may change things, but we've learned a lot about politics over the last couple of decades that it takes a lot for people to get a great deal of success. It takes a lot of resources to have great success. And I think it's going to be a little bit more challenging to make the decision about. Question, Governor Bush, in your view, that was the most important part of the job you had to do. Have you been able to do it all? Mr. Bush, well, I think I've done a great job of working with my staff. 
And I think I'm very confident within my staff that if things continue as they have. So, I was very aware of the concerns of certain groups. I said, well, I don't think there should be any political discussion there. I think if Republicans become increasingly isolated in this country, I'm not sure they will make it as the Republicans are in Congress. So, at the end of the day, I think I would be very happy to go in another direction and do something different. And that's what I would do. And I think I'd be very happy to go back to talking in private to people that are different about these issues. And maybe other folks from different parties are going to get involved in that. We'll see where that goes. Question, would you like to continue campaigning on the next issue if you could and if so, would you not? Mr. Bush, that's right. I think the people in this race are willing to have, I'd look at it as, well, if, what do you guys think this is we want? Question, Governor Bush, for those of us who are not on the fence about it, what have you been seeing in the campaign lately? You have had a very positive campaign. What have you had to do here? I know now where you're at. Mr. Bush, my campaign has been very positive. I'm hopeful that, I know what we're doing is working to do good things for Americans and a lot of people. I think we're going to be very successful. There's some things I would like to address. I know some of you can see how we work, but I'm not going to be able to speak on those issues. That would be the worst thing to do. I've been working very closely and really diligently on these issues and working hard with my team here all this time to get people focused. I wouldn't want to be too dismissive of that. I believe it would be the best thing that happens, I believe some people would be very happy to engage in that as well. So, I think having a much clearer relationship with folks, if, and I'm being extremely blunt with you, as well, I think you can see where it goes when we're talking about the issue. Question, Governor Bush, how much longer do you think the United States should remain a leader of our nation? Question, Governor Bush, how much longer do you think the United States should remain a leader of our nation? You have been a member of the NATO Council for 14 years now. How long does it take to leave the NATO alliance in order to make the US a leader of our country? Paul Bush, well, a lot of people say, we have a lot of work to do to make sure that we stay in. We've only four years. And we have to make sure that we recognize that we're a non-proliferation regime, that we don't do weapons-free zones around the world, that we don't tolerate chemical weapons, but that we can keep our diplomats on our terms. And I think that we have to make sure that we do that with respect to those sanctions, where, look, we have enough information and we're not going to leave an open door and start making our own judgments. And we must make sure that if we leave, that everyone knows, I think there are going to be some questions about that. And what I want to avoid, as far as they're concerned is that these things have no diplomatic value and they can't be used to commit war crimes. So we have to go where those things sit and use those very, very strong principles to ensure that we are a non-proliferation regime. And of course, we don't have a good standard of living and a basic standard of living. And some folks, you know, as some of you may know, have been very pessimistic. I mean, and for them, what we have to focus on in our efforts that goes well is economic development and that's where we're really at. We have to work to make sure that we're not in a position where we're in situations where we can say, look, if you're going to make some mistakes, do we really have to repeat what you've taken care of and not just do some things that come out of the mistakes in the past when you can do these things now? So, for example, the Iraq policy is a great example. In fact, you have this great story from my years as Secretary of State, 
which goes back to this very recent time, but I want to talk about what it actually is. At least a couple of years ago, I think people who still hold up the Iraq program think it should be a one-year program, because it's a war that hasn't been fought for several hundred years and you've got to build weapons with a very strong security environment all over this world. And I don't think it's a one-year program. And it would be one year for a country that hasn't taken the steps to actually be ready to take those steps. I think it, and then the United States is not at peace for the rest of the 21st century. And I think there is a big difference between that and the one that was made in the 1990s, this whole idea that a program of this size that has to be stopped, that's a little bit tougher than a program that goes off and we don't get to go there. I think that the question that people must ask is, will we not be able to build weapons again with this government and a place where we don't have enough resources to take care of the Iraqi people? Yes. If you want to build a nuclear weapons system, that's a pretty substantial program that's going to be in the works. It's a bit better because we have some money and money, some time. And when you look at other nations that have had this kind of program before, we have very much more resources and more leadership. So I think that the question for us to consider is, when we give them money, who will have the money to go and train their people? So I think every time if somebody goes around and says, we're going to get you out of there as quickly as possible, that gets us out of conflict. And when we give them some money, they can do this the way you guys think it would be able to be done, and you have them doing all the things right now. And they can, with the money that's out there, they can go about doing business as much as they want to. And they can move up very quickly without going across the finish line. And, I, by the way, you want to take a look at these other countries that have got nuclear weapons. I mean, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Syria, with their support, and other countries that have had this kind of weapon, have gone back on its word. And they can, with the money that's out there, they can go about doing business as much as they want to. And they can move up very quickly without going across the finish line. And, I, by the way, you want to take a look at these other countries that have got nuclear weapons. I mean, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Syria, with their support, and other countries that have had this kind of weapon, have gone back on its word. And they have done it without ever saying anything. Amy Goodman, when you go to the United Nations to protest the use of chemical weapons, you want to go back to Washington DC, where there is a huge problem over the use of chemical weapons. What do you think President Obama is going to do to try to resolve that? David Shook, well, he's going to go in and say that the United States has a treaty of rights with these countries. And so if we're going to stop chemical weapons use, I don't think it's going to be easy to go back to the United Nations. So I don't think President Obama would go in and say it with absolute force. Because, you know, I know that in these discussions with the other representatives that the United States has, Every time we use chemical weapons, we're talking about war plans. We've been talking with these countries before. That goes for other countries. But this question remains, what should we do about this? And when I sit down on a Tuesday morning, I want to say this. I don't think that I want to take the job of a member of Congress. It's the responsibility. I don't want to be sitting on the floor discussing this issue. And so I think, you know, every government should be making the same request to its citizens. David Shook, first, it's important to remember that the United States is not a foreign policy power. It's actually a coalition of nations. On the other hand, we don't have nuclear weapons. 
One of their leaders says, well, you've had this kind of relationship with the Soviet Union, and you still do not have nuclear weapons. And the other leader says, well, look, that relationship has never been stronger. We know this has always been strong. And the US president was never asked, do you think the Soviets like the United States? That was during the Cold War, just like any international agreement. One guns less, all right. It's interesting to watch your reactions, to take just a moment to ask them what President Obama means. David shook, well, let me just say how much I mean the president. And, you know, the fact that, you know, there have been meetings and discussions this week or next with the leaders of those countries that were at the forefront of this debate. And, you know, this debate has been taking place as to whether you're part of the global community, whether you're part of a UN Security Council, whether you're part of the US Congress. And that debate has been taking place for years. And, you know, the question of whether or not these countries use chemical weapons now if people is really that difficult? I mean, the fact is that so few of them have tried to deal with chemical weapons, and certainly, we haven't seen that happening. It is very difficult for them to do so. And so I mean, so while our government is trying to have a discussion, and as we continue to have more and more of these conversations, and there is, you know, an emerging group, a group of countries that, a bunch of young people of different backgrounds are now participating in these debates. And it's, I think, the sort of conversation that we need. And I just think it's important to understand that we do not want chemical weapons, because the United States has some veto power over this issue. So to try to help solve the problem, that's the kind of diplomacy that would lead to a resolution or a resolution with the United States of America. For example, President Obama and the other leaders in Congress have expressed outrage about chemical weapons being used. What is your view with regard to that? Because that is, if any country were to use chemical weapons, could you imagine what the unintended consequences might be? Would people, could they be killed? Were there unintended consequences? And if we're talking about the use of chemical weapons, what would that have been that led to? For example, President Obama and the other leaders in Congress have expressed outrage about chemical weapons being used. What is your view with regard to that? Because that is, if any country were to use chemical weapons, could you imagine what the unintended consequences might be? Would people, could they be killed? Were there unintended consequences? And if we're talking about the use of chemical weapons, what would that have been that led to? That was, the American people were horrified about it. It was almost a wholesale response. And then we had this terrible, horrible conflict between our government and the regime inside Syria. The United States' response to that. There was an urgent call for an independent investigation. I talked to Secretary of State Dean Ruskin said, well, you know, you know, there are a lot of people who say the question is whether or not the American people ever heard from chemical weapons experts. Senator Marco Rubio, DCA, you know, it's extremely frustrating for US presidents to have to deal with such an issue. The US government should be talking to our international peers about this, and it's not surprising from the perspective of the United States that they have not heard from the experts, says Republican Congressman Robert Goodlock. Republican Virginia. Obama responded, and I just think that the United States is a leader that puts our people first, and that this is a very serious decision that we ought to take immediately, like every other country has not to give up their air force. 
This is an issue of a national security interest. We should be taking seriously the report and take actions. I have no doubt in my mind that chemical weapons have been used, if it is possible, against people in Syria, Dr. John F. Connolly, the head of the National Institute for Strategic Development, told MSNBC. I was in fact in Syria. I don't understand how anybody could believe there is chemical weapons. Senator Richard Burr, Republican North Carolina, who chairs the Senate Select Committee on Syria, added that, we need to recognize that it is a national security interest and, you know, we should immediately take all these actions and put pressure on the perpetrators of these attacks to come forward and speak out. But Senator Michael Bennett, Democrat Colorado, another top Democrat on the committee, disagrees, insisting that chemical weapon attacks on civilians should be prosecuted, saying, I don't support the use of chemical weapons in any other country. That's not going to sit well with Americans. And Senator Lindsey O. Graham, Republican South Carolina, who chairs the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and chairs the Armed Services Committee, said, if they were to tell me that they used chemical weapons, I would have a hard time saying, oh, this is not a good idea. I would say that the use of chemical weapons is wrong. Senator Barbara Boxer, Democrat California, who heads the Committee on Foreign Relations, agrees. A chemical weapons weapon doesn't involve use of chemical weapons, she told Fox. It's no different than bombing the U.S. military. The use of chemicals is prohibited under international law. The attack on innocents in Syria was not designed to target civilians, as claimed by many officials who claimed there were no such weapons. But Senator Michael Bennett, Democrat Colorado, another top Democrat on the committee, disagrees, insisting that chemical weapon attacks on civilians should be prosecuted, saying, I don't support the use of chemical weapons in any other country. That's not going to sit well with Americans. And Senator Lindsey O. Graham, Republican South Carolina, who chairs the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and chairs the Armed Services Committee, said, if they were to tell me that they used chemical weapons, I would have a hard time saying, oh, this is not a good idea. I would say that the use of chemical weapons is wrong. Senator Barbara Boxer, Democrat California, who heads the Committee on Foreign Relations, agrees. A chemical weapons weapon doesn't involve use of chemical weapons, she told Fox. It's no different than bombing the U.S. military. The use of chemicals is prohibited under international law. The attack on innocents in Syria was not designed to target civilians, as claimed by many officials who claimed there were no such weapons. Former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright said, We are told that the weapons came from the Syrian government in one shot. It was not in one shot, it was in a few, some, but it was not the same. These kinds of reports show that Assad and other members of the regime were not seeking a chemical weapons attack on civilians, a non-violent action. That's why I hold my gun. Senator Rand Paul, Republican Kentucky, and Kentucky Senator John McCain, Republican Arizona, told Fox News that he also supported the administration's conclusive assessment that Iran's actions to its nuclear program are consistent with international law. Senate Foreign Relations Committee Ranking Member Jim Lankford of South Carolina, the panel's chairman, added, I'm not going to change my positions on this issue, this resolution, on an issue like this. I believe I've seen a clear problem of the president continuing to disregard international law and the norms that underlie the use of deadly force. 
And I understand where Senator Langford's concerns come from. I take the decision in this regard to not pursue this resolution. At the end of the day, I also have to understand that President Obama's intent, based on his own judgment, is to impose sanctions. House Speaker John Boehner, Republican Ohio, Chairman of the House Republican Conference, also agreed with Senator John McCain. By his own judgment, he said, the President has decided at a late date that Iran and other powers that were involved in the Iran-Contra inquiry are the ones to bear the brunt today's congressional action on Syria, and as I said, there's no clear way that Iran's use of chemical weapons could be considered a first and nine action in a negotiation or actionable issue. I have no problem, therefore, with this resolution. I understand the judgment of the President, but I do not have a resolution of my part that will change that. What's your reaction? When asked if she has ever seen a resolution of such seriousness, Representative Mark Sanford, RSCE, stated, I have not seen a resolution. Senator Al Franken, Democrat Minnesota, said the resolution is not necessary because the United States has so far not done much. Senator John McCain, Republican Arizona, expressed similar sentiments, saying that if such actions were to occur, it has been too soon to determine what would happen if Assad's regime did something similar. Senator Lindsey O. Graham, RSC, added, What has happened in Syria has been beyond anyone's comprehension at this point, and I think President Obama is the last person standing to make this decision. Senate Foreign Relations Committee Chairman Mike Lee, Republican Utah, continued, I recognize how dangerous the use of chemical weapons is, and there have been instances where so many have been harmed by this violence, but I don't believe that the United States should be used to impose sanctions on other nations who have committed deadly terrorist acts in Syria. This response was only further evidence of the Obama administration's deep, deliberate denial of that which has been consistently reported for over a year. Obama's administration had long ago acknowledged that its chemical weapons policies have been deeply flawed in both international justice and human rights matters, and had no longer said what it wanted to know. The Obama administration has been forced to confront both a very disturbing, very real problem and this one not so deep problem.